0: Hello, and thank you so much for tuning into this week's Food for Thought, a podcast that's on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well, and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each of the 12 episodes, I'll be joined by guests, all of whom are experts in their field so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. As many as one in four people globally will experience a mental health issue at some point in life. Mental health affects how you think, you feel and act on a daily basis, as well as influences how you handle stress, make decisions and connect with others. So this week's Food for Thought sees Dr. Emma Hepburn and I explore why we all should be adding mental health to the top of our priority list. Hello, Emma. Well, thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I think this episode is going to be an incredibly helpful one for our listeners, because I think we all need to understand, don't we, and just kind of recoup and know how we can better understand, I guess, our own mental health, because I don't think people know how to do that, do they?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think there's so much information saying it's okay not to be okay that we need to look after mental health but actually how do we do that what do we actually do on a daily basis that the evidence shows improves our mental health i'm just going to come back to the figure one in four because so many of us including myself quote the figure that one in four people have a mental health condition at Mm. some point in their life however really interesting research that actually um it's probably higher than this so the one in four figure it was based on a study by the office of national statistics but they left out lots of groups of people who probably have higher vulnerability to mental health difficulties some really interesting research coming in from a long-term study in dunedin in new zealand that is actually probably higher to 60 percent or even possibly as high as 80% of people who report a mental health concern at some point in their life. So really important.
0: Yeah, huge hugely important. Um, and I guess it's the um, sometimes day to day, the smallest things that we do, the, the daily things I guess, good or bad, however we want to describe it, that have the biggest influence over us, don't they? It doesn't have to be something catastrophic.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, catastrophic things can have a, a negative impact. But in terms of improving your mental health, sometimes we think it's the big things that we need to do, big overhauls in our life. But actually, it's the small daily things, often tiny things that can improve our mental
0: health that we really need to focus on. Mm, yeah, completely. I, I guess I guess it's being kind to ourselves in a way, because how do you even start acknowledging these what's and how's every day we feel and wise and changes that we should perhaps be navigating through because i think change can be one of the most terrifying things as a human being i said all the time in the nutrition clinic that we don't like change do we as humans
1: oh absolutely our brains find change stressful which is probably why the last year has been so stressful and it- therefore it goes along with its habitual ways which are much easier and create less effort for your brain so change can be overwhelming particularly big change and i think you've tapped into something there about kindness sometimes it's not mm-hmm. necessarily change in behaviors sometimes it is about how we speak to ourselves or how we focus on ourselves so kindness it has got lots of evidence or compassion has lots of evidence that it can improve mental health
0: Oh, I love that so it's how do you just on I guess this is on the same topic but in terms of being kind there have been a lot of movements um in a mental health perspective I think since the passing really sadly of Caroline flack and I mean, I'm going to use her as, you know, somebody in the public eye that most people will be able to know, listening on this podcast. She was experiencing really poor mental health and she mentioned that she experienced a lot of unkindness from others. Where do you think this stems from the, I guess, being unkind to another person? Does that develop in itself from a place of poor mental health as well?
1: It's a really interesting question and it can do, but there can be lots of reasons for it. And obviously what she experienced was online. Now, I can't obviously comment on her personal mm. circumstances, but in terms of online unkindness, it's a bit like road rage when we're in a car and we're surrounded by that, you know, car exterior we feel a bit separate from things we don't feel integrated into the world so we're probably more likely to get annoyed at somebody when they do something or they they cut us up in a in a traffic jam because we're our own little bubble now if you take mm. that car bubble and apply it online it's even more so we don't necessarily feel connected to the people at the other end of the screen behind the wall the celebrities they feel very distant and if people are distant it's much easier to almost dehumanize them and not think yeah. about the impact we have on them whereas same as in a car we're unlikely to shout at that person or hopefully we're unlikely to shout to the person if they're in the room next to us because we'll see the impact there's also much mm-hmm. more risk and the same if it's behind a screen we think about the kind of Impact the human element of it much more when we're with a person, and all, the internet can sometimes dehumanise people, so yes. and create out groups, so we're much more likely to do behaviours towards them that we probably wouldn't do in real life. So, and kindness is crucial, kindness to ourselves, but also kindness to other people. And that's crucial not just for the person you're being kind to because obviously bullying and harassment can create a lot of stress for that person but it's also crucial for yourself because kindness to other people helping other people creates
0: benefits for your own mental health as well so it's a two-way process it really is a, a two-way process indeed and that's why mental health i think is so important to be spoken about because often it stays perhaps with the individual or maybe someone doesn't feel they can reach out and speak to somebody about it. And if we go back to the, the adapting and the change that we've spoken about and being kind as being a mechanism and vehicle to help us do that, life isn't linear. I, I guess as human beings, we do need to be more adaptable and move away, I guess, from expectations of others to be seen a certain way. If you look at online, you know, it, it's difficult, isn't it, to navigate this world?
1: Absolutely, and I think that's that's a really interesting point. Life isn't linear, because I don't know about you, but I think I had this belief as I was growing up, that I would get to a point in my life and I had made it. I had made it for adulthood know? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, were you the same yeah. i would have become an adult i would have you know succeeded i would have reached peak happiness is that kind of pathway you suddenly reach this epiphany and that's you done and of course that's not what life is like and if we believe that's what life is like it can get us on this what's called a hedonic treadmill we're constantly striving for the next thing we're trying to achieve this kind of plateau this epiphany which will never actually happen because life is not linear like you said and if we start to see that let's say life is a series of ups and downs and happiness only lasts for short periods we need to then change instead of striving for the future and to bring in what we do into the here and now how can i make the most of what i've got how can i Think about my happiness now, not wait for happiness when I get reached that point, but what can I do now for happiness and see it as a skill that we can really introduce into our lives in the here and now.
0: Oh, that's so, in. oh, just the way you said, you know, we're not going to be happy all the time, you know, it comes and goes. I I think just being taught that from a young age would have been invaluable. I mean, I pinned my hopes on thinking life was a Disney movie. Um, I think we all did. It really shaped my childhood, and it was lovely for imagination, but it wasn't at the time with the types of films that were coming out very, um, because it always finished, didn't it? You'd get to the end where someone might get married or something nice happened, and then you don't see what happens afterwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, the happy ever after. I I really annoy my daughter. My daughter is 8 now and yeah. she's kind of grown out of fairy books a bit, but we, mm. we read them now and again, but when I used to read them, I would say to her and then they met, and they lived happily ever after, except for one point six years down the line when they found life was quite difficult. And she go, "Mummy, stop it!" And what he was trying to do, probably unconsciously, apart from annoy her, was um, was trying to kind of put that realistic perception on, mm. and uh, you know, trying to joke about it. But it was saying, "Well, you know, they're not going to be happy ever after. Even if they've walked down the aisle, things will happen, which it will be difficult
0: at times." Yeah and you know I really like that because I would never want to take away from a child happy ever after because you know it got me through childhood in a way but it's nice to add a kind of caveat to it like like you've done really nicely there I think <laughs> um, with your daughter. I mean today's life is busier and stressful and more stretched I think than ever before and now particularly with the emphasis being that you can do anything any time of day online I think it's added another level of stress in a, in a way so how can we go about easing this
1: I think that's an excellent point isn't it the difficulty switching mm. off from our jobs mm. right now because they're we're not going into an office and then coming home and having that automatic switch off And also, many of our jobs are online. So it's so easy just to slip back in. I'll just check my emails. Okay, it's 10 o'clock at night. I'll just check them to see what I've got in the morning. So that's a really key thing, I think, and that's really crucial. But stepping back as well is this kind of overwhelm, this productivity. And there certainly is a kind of push for productivity. So I realized a few years ago that if I wasn't feeling stressed at work, I didn't think I was working. That's ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. So there's something about if I wasn't really busy and really stressed, you know, I wasn't working, about actually work should be about enjoying yourself. And that's me tying into that kind of cultural belief that we need to be constantly on the go. we need to constantly achieve, we need to constantly produce. And actually we're not being productive if we stop. Now, clearly that's harmful because if yeah. we are constantly switched on we're constantly engaging our stress system we're constantly active then our body will be constantly like a high threat high stress mode Mm. and we need to recover from that so we need to switch off we need that downtime we need time when we're not multitasking and thinking lots of things thinking about work we need time when we're doing things we enjoy that are restful that are invigorating for us that make us feel good And if we start to see these activities as productive in themselves because they are then we start to give them the value they deserve and start to introduce them into our lives. So if we think actually I'm going to tie in today after I've done that activity that job work whatever it is I'm going to actually tie in and do something I really enjoy for half an hour instead of sitting down and feeling guilty about it we think well actually this is productive because what it's doing it's engaging my parasympathetic nervous system mm. and that's counteracting the effects of stress it's healing your body it's improving your physical well-being your mental well-being and it's helping you thrive and survive so yeah. downtime enjoyment doing things that make us feel good are not these kind of nice little things we do when we f- have the time they need to be integral and they're absolutely a requirement for your well-being physical yeah.
0: and mental yeah it's definitely not just wishy-washy which i think the perception of taking time out has been for many a year i mean i, I grew up um with a focus of getting into the music industry and time off was just unheard of it was the attitude of you just keep going, you know, you work all hours every single day or you'll never be successful. And actually, one of the biggest things that I think aided me at the time I didn't know was deep breathing because, Uh you know, diaphragmatic breathing as a soprano is is huge. And I think that when we do that, do correct me if I'm wrong, we are tapping into our parasympathetic nervous system by engaging in breathing, because that's something everyone can do. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And it's actually a really,
1: really efficient way to engage that system. What happens when our threat system is engaged, our breathing increases, our bodies attempt to get more energy in, trying to get you going, trying to get more oxygen in to kind of get all those body systems active and ready. And and our breathing gets really quick and rapid. And what you need to do is really slow it down Mm. and relax the system. And that is it's... I think we think of breathing as so simple and so easy that surely this simple thing can't actually have an effect and i actually think as a psychologist i've also been guilty of that thinking i can't tell people to breathe you know what are they going to think about it but the further on i've got in my career the more i use that and kind of and and i've seen how powerful it can be for people and it's also really good cuz it's something you can do at any point. You can sit on a bus and do it. Okay, not many of us are sitting on buses right now, but you know, you can do it anywhere. You can do it in a in a cafe, you can do it anywhere. It's not something like people are going to even going to be aware you're doing. So it's a really nice technique to use.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's something that everybody can literally tap into. I mean, breathing is something anybody can do. That's that's the beauty of it because I think the implications as a nation that we've had in the last um, the last year with COVID, it's it's definitely seen a, a drastic rise in cases of eating disorders in our clinic, but do you think in general it has really impacted the nation's mental health?
1: Yes, I think we're still going through a pandemic obviously, and we yeah. are seeing um, an increase in referrals to mental health services and also, uh, reduction in overall well-being as a nation of our mental health so more people are kind of going down the mental health curve now i think we have to remember that we're still living in a high threat situation we're in the middle of it we're not having come out the end yet so is it actually quite normal to be feeling a bit bad in this really high threat situation i would say it probably Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. and uh, obviously you still need to seek support when your mental health deteriorates but actually Most people are incredibly resilient. So will this be long term or not? We just don't know because none of us have lived through a pandemic before. But what we do know is when people come out the other end of difficult situations, that many people will recover very well many people will experience what we call post-traumatic growth. They will gain benefits from the situation. They will maybe adapt their life and think about maybe their mental well-being more. And obviously, some people will be impacted on. But I think it's very, very difficult to predict. And actually saying there's going to be a mental health pandemic is not that helpful, Mm. I think, because we don't know that. Um, We need to look at the evidence and see what's happening. But obviously, we need to have services there so people can help, or identify early when things are going wrong so they can access that which isn't always easy necessarily but i think it's it's too early and we need to track kind of where things are going with it. although there have obviously been declines in people's well-being and mental health
0: yeah yeah it, it's it's it, i still can't quite absorb it you know you know it's almost like one of those things that's happened to you know my life's been drastically changed in the last year for example having a baby in the april peak and seeing how I've been impacted, I guess, with my mental health. But I I can't, the fact that every single person has been impacted by this, but we don't have any any data or stats. And as you said, you know, we don't really have a realistic picture of everything quite yet. So how do you think the education system then, or the NHS can do more? I mean, how can we support ourselves and our loved ones and what changes need to be made to support mental health?
1: I think you're tapping into something really, really important there, because treatment of mental health is obviously really, really important, but it's just part of the story. We can't just respond to mental health when it has gone wrong and it needs fixed. It's a very important part of the story, but we actually need to look at what else helps mental health. And we know that community interventions, community strategies, education around mental health in schools, NHS actually are doing some really nice um, interventions at the moment, looking at resilience hubs in lots of areas where people can phone in, self-refer maybe when they just need some advice. So kind of that early intervention or kind of preventative work as well. And we really need to focus on that early intervention and preventative work because we want people really not to get to the point of it needing totally fixed. We want people to catch it early when they can. It's not always possible and to intervene at that point. And we also need to keep people's, mental health good and that's not done by going to a clinic room that's done by what's available to them in their community what's available to them in their everyday life the social networks that are available to them what they experience in their everyday life so what can we do at a community level really really crucial what networks can we can we put in place to help people with their wellbeing? and that's things like youth work is things like you know networks for women or for minorities Mm. all these Mm. things help with mental health so treatment is just one part of the picture and we need to be focusing on the other parts as well really important i actually think there's some wonderful work being done there some of it has been increased through the pandemic so i've seen you know i think schools certainly in scotland are making well-being a priority and doing some lovely work i've seen my kids come home with brilliant stuff around well-being so there's some really nice work being done there and i think if anything positive comes out of this in terms of well-being I think it is that people are becoming more aware they become more aware in workplaces about well-being I've spoken to lots of of organizations recently about how they can incorporate well-being into the workplaces and I think people are just realizing that it's not this is new it's always been there but it's really really crucial and so looking at well-being not just to say at that end point but at all points of how we can support it how we can create environments which are
0: good for well-being it's it's good to know i think that everybody's aware of the situation i guess and i, I think the media perhaps does need to do a bit more though or be a bit more responsible or perhaps the media can be used in a way to represent a more realistic picture, or are they doing that, and we're just not receptive to it? What's going on there?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, I think I think that's absolutely crucial, isn't it? How mental health is portrayed in the media, um, and there are, you know, I think Natasha Devon is doing a mental health charter for the media, which is really important. Trying to get people to sign up to and get advice from people who actually know, getting um, you know experts through experience to advise people on their portrayals, because if we see mental health health as something scary as something that other people have that's something that is you know just extreme or violent or um, aggression then we're going to switch off and think that's not us we need to mm. see people who are um, representing all levels of mental health yeah. and all difficulties and across the whole Population or the whole spectrum of the population, so people can identify with that. Really, really key, and also hearing people's stories. And I actually think that has been done recently in a very sensitive way. There's some mm. some really nice documentaries recently about hearing people's stories, because I think that's what we engage with most. We engage with people's stories, letting people tell their stories, and understanding that why, wow, if that person's experienced it, you know, I didn't really think that person would experience it, but if they're experiencing it, then and I relate to them, then I will think about it in myself as well. So really important, really crucial to see real life, realistic representations across in documentaries, but also in, you know, there's some great soap opera stories as well, but certainly <laughs> yeah. improvements to be made, but there's some great work going on there as well to improve that.
0: hundred percent. I think you use the word to identify with, and I think that's why, I mean, we've had a discussion in the media in the past few years as well, If we need to show more body shapes sizes cultures backgrounds ethnicities we need to show a complete diverse range of everything in order for everybody to be able to identify and that's another whole separate topic so i'm not going to go into that now because we have discussed that on other podcasts but how important would you say self-belief is because if you struggle with confidence um i don't know how to phrase it how how can we I don't know bolster this in a positive way and get improvement there and perhaps self-belief is something if we have better self-belief we can manage situations in a better way yeah i think i think it, it depends what we mean
1: by self-belief because i think we often talk about self-esteem and self-esteem can be very achievement based so i need to do this and then i will feel good about myself but actually if we shift self-belief to maybe self-compassion and come back to that kindness that's often a far easier thing to do. Rather than saying I need to be kind of believing in myself all the time, actually none of us do, do we, we all have self-doubts and that's okay. But if we shift it to say, I'm going to recognize that self-doubt and the stress feeling bad at times are normal and that I can still be kind to myself and recognize that that's a common human trait and be compassionate to myself in the middle of it. That's a lot stronger kind of belief system than having to base it on achievement because we can't always achieve. We actually need to be kind and compassionate to ourselves when we don't achieve and when we make mistakes because that's normal. So I think maybe switching it from self-belief to self-compassion is a really positive thing. But obviously we do need to kind of see ourselves, which I think is also part of self-compassion, as equal to other humans. Mm, yeah. We're not worse than anybody else. We're not necessarily better than anybody else. We're just all human. We've got this common humanity. We all make mistakes. We all muck up at times. We all get things wrong. None of us achieve and do our best all the time. It's not normal to get do things well all the time. We all make mistakes and we're all learning. And if we can start to see ourselves in that way, rather than having to achieve, Or having to get things right, but we can start to believe that we are just as good as all other humans because we make mistakes, because we get things wrong, because we experience distress. I think that's a lot more powerful than basing it on what we do or don't do, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it does. It it makes complete and utter sense. And I think so, people listening will be like, well, what can I physically do to help? you know, to help me approach my mental health in a different way. And I often mention that there are a lot of benefits also to our listeners for physical activity. Um, You know, even it doesn't have to be going to the gym. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think lockdown has actually shown people that's not, you know, you don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. But just going for a walk, getting some fresh air. Do you have any suggestions on some really easy lifestyle tips that people can incorporate to feel better?
1: I mean, I think you've just said two of them getting outside, (laughs) moving your body, and both have been shown to have really positive impacts on your well being and mental health. and and actually because often when we're outside we actually move our body anyway because often we're moving through the environment we're doing something it doesn't have to be you know say going to play a game of football or going to have a game of tennis or whatever just even getting outside moving around looking at the horizon looking at the trees can be really beneficial for our well-being so really interesting exercise lots of benefits for our well-being for lots of different reasons it releases chemicals which makes us feel good it actually manages that stress response and helps kind of reduce it and releases chemicals which help release it or sorry reduce it but also it helps our brain as well releases a kind of growth hormone which helps our brain kind of thrive so multiple mechanisms in which exercise are good for well-being there seems to be something inherently beneficial about being in green space or blue space for our well-being Mm. We're not sure exactly what it is, but certainly being outside, looking at the, you know, the space outside, it might take you out of your thoughts. You might be kind of caught up in your own thoughts or, or um, overthinking something. So looking at the outside space seems to move you away from that. There seems to be something about being outside and noticing nature which creates a sense of awe, and the emotion awe isn't probably talked about that much, but awe kind of is when you find something amazing and doesn't have to be you know seeing like the Eiffel Tower which is quite amazing but it can just be noticing the shapes of the trees noticing the horizon looking up and seeing you know really impressive buildings and that sense of awe seems to shift our perspective from thinking about ourselves to thinking about ourselves in the environment and in a, in a bigger picture and mm. that in itself seems to be very good for well-being too so multiple mechanisms of getting outside, being in nature, moving your body can
0: improve well-being.: Yeah, oh, I, I completely agree, and I think um, I guess something was I guess reducing technology if it's something that spikes anxiety maybe another another useful one. I mean it's, it's really hard, I think, mentioning technology at the moment, isn't it because it so much of our livelihoods can depend on it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it is about, as you say, not seeing technology as kind of black and white, good or bad. It's about how we use it, how we consume it, and noticing when it starts to impact negatively on us. Now, we're all becoming aware that social media is designed to capture your attention. It's driven by the amount of attention you pay to it and kind of getting you into it, sucking you into it, and keeping you in it for as long as possible. And ironically, when we're not feeling good, we're more likely to do that because we have less control of our attention. We're more likely to not notice we'd be drawn into it. So I think keeping an eye on how much you're using social media, but also technology generally, noticing how mm. you're feeling when you are doing it, it'll start to think, kind of check in with yourself if you can, how am I feeling? Do I want to keep on going with this or do I want to stop? Um, Noticing if you're making maybe comparisons to other people. We know that social media is absolutely crucial for making comparisons. And what do we do? We make what's called upward comparisons. We compare ourselves to people we think are better than us. What's that going to do? It's going to make us feel bad. So notice when you're making these comparisons, which are unrealistic, we're basing them on part of our picture compared to sorry, sorry, part of somebody else's picture, a tiny little part, compared to the whole of our picture. So starting to notice how it's making you feel. And also, the other thing social media does, it takes away from noticing things which are good from us. So noticing the environment, being with other people. Really nice studies showing that if we have our mobile phone on at a table, when we're having a meal, we enjoy the meal less. So distracts our attention uses our brain space it uses that space which we could be using to enjoy ourselves and notice a meal speak to our friend really think about what's going on so thinking about when you can actually switch off from it when you don't want it to use your brain space and that might be i've just started basically switching all my apps off on my phone at eight o'clock at night and because it's no longer automatic i can still get onto them but it takes a lot more effort to get onto them so i go to my phone and i just don't do it anymore because it creates what's called friction there's more friction to get onto an app and i think that's the best way is try and make them less automatic or actually switch them off or put it away because i think we overrate willpower if your phone's sitting there getting drawn in is so easy or if it's away from you it's in a totally different room you have to do a lot more to get onto your phone you have to get up go and yeah. find it switch it on possibly
0: <laughs> so it's about reducing how automatic it is at the times you don't want to use it 100% some really good tips there and then i think one more question before i take questions from our listeners for you Emma um how do you ask for help when it can seem i think terrifying to a lot of people or sometimes even impossible
1: oh i think that's a great question and I, I, I think you know having sat on our side when people that come in um for help i have a huge admiration for people who take that step it's not easy mm-hmm. and you know speaking to a stranger when you first see somebody and open up to a stranger it's not easy and we have to recognize it's not always easy it can be really hard to ask for help you might have asked for help in the past for your mental health and not received it which is going to make it even more of a barrier so it is difficult but what I would say is that asking for help is a huge strength and being able to ask for help is a skill in itself and I think also recognizing when you need help is really difficult because the thing about mental health, is not just black and white. Oh, suddenly I've got a sore brain. We don't say that because it's not what happens. It comes in gradually and insidiously. So we might feel sad and then we get more sad and our behavior gradually changes, our emotions change, but there's not an exact point when our mental health becomes difficult and requires help. It's gradual mm. so we don't notice it. So I think the other thing is understanding what are the signs that your mental health is suffering and you may need help and thinking about what are the emotions i would be feeling or i have felt how do my behaviors change and you know what would be different or what would be seen differently in myself at that point and actually sometimes other people are better at noticing that than yourself so being open to maybe having that discussion with other people mm. and i think the other thing is you know people will not be judging you when you ask for help see i've sat in clinic rooms with people and i have massive admiration for the fact they've come in and they're speaking to me about it that's how people view you if you ask of your help that's how your your gp should view you who's off your first port of call that's how you know i view people when they're asking for help i have absolutely huge, huge admiration for anybody who does it because it is it's not an easy thing to do but also knowing that there are good evidence-based treatments out there for mental health and there's lots of options and it's important to know those options because it is treatable it is changeable so Mm. holding on to that hope that there are options out there now if you don't get a good reception because you should get a good reception you ask for help don't internalize that and think that's something to do with you that should not be happening people should be listening to your experience and letting you tell your story and providing you with the options if you don't get a good experience that's not about you there will be somebody there who will listen and be able to offer you the advice and the support you need because there's lots of really sympathetic empathetic compassionate professionals out there mm. to support your mental health and well-being
0: yeah uh, completely that was so lovely what a great answer emma thank you it does lead me on to questions from our listeners so rachel has said i hate my job but i'm worried about changing career i guess we've got the scared you know the fear of change there again she said how can i find my true purpose
1: gosh that's that's a difficult one isn't Deep. it because yeah <laughs> you're in, yeah you're in a status quo which you don't like mm-hmm. but change is scary it's an uncertain and i think sometimes the status quo you don't like because seems safer than actually the uncertain change so we don't know what's out there I would say in terms of your purpose, I would go back to your values. What's important to you? What makes you, what gives you meaning? What makes you feel like you're really living and engaging with something? So go back to your values and think about what's important to you. Now, I have just made that sound really, really easy. It's not always easy (laughs) to identify your values. But there's some really nice exercises online. If you type in values or understand my values, you can find some really nice exercises which help you kind of sort out or there's a card sort exercise. You can look at your values and sort out which ones are important to you. So but think about your values. And then when it comes Mm, to decision, think about which decision fits best with those values. So does staying in your old job, does it fit with your jet values? Well, maybe that's right for you if it does. But it sounds like in this instance, it doesn't. So when you have a decision to try something new, does that fit better with your values? Because we know that living life in, along with your values and aside people who have hold the same values is beneficial for our well-being. So that values decision signpost can be really helpful in thinking about decisions.
0: Yeah, exactly. Excellently answered again. And then we've got a question from... Um, Vicks, who said, I'm always, or I've always been, rather, so shy in social situations. What can I do to build my confidence?
1: Well, that's a, a really nice question. And I think there's this view that shyness, there's something wrong with it. Now, there's nothing wrong with shyness at all. Many of us feel shy and uncomfortable in social situations. It's, it's actually a perfectly normal way mm. to feel. So that feeling itself, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing embarrassing about being shy. There's actually a really nice book just about shyness. And I think that's um, it's just kind of normalising that shyness is really common amongst people. And we don't need to change the shyness. But if the shyness gets in the way of doing what we want, then it you know it's worth thinking about how we manage that. I would say kind of building up gradually when you can, not forcing yourself in situations which feel overwhelming. Doing things in a gradual way can help your brain kind of predict that it's, it's OK to do it rather than it's going to be terrible to do it. And the other thing you can do is often when we're shy, we become so aware of ourselves and how we are in the situation. So our attentional focus becomes all about us and we start to notice, oh, my cheeks are burning up or "Oh, I'm getting a, a red rash on my neck. And, and then it becomes more and more kind of driven or our attention becomes more driven towards ourselves, which makes us feel more shy. And actually mm. shifting that focus to really thinking about what's this person saying um, and trying to really listen to what they're saying. It's not easy to do. Again, I make these things sound easy, but actually often, <laughs> you know, it takes... A long time or a while to learn how to do these but you know start by shifting yes. and saying i'm going to focus on this person and actually remembering that person probably isn't really caring about you know your shyness or or you know your red cheeks in fact they probably won't even notice it i say to my kids sometimes you know i remember my my daughter feeling embarrassed about walking down the road in a costume she said somebody in the car just looked at me i said do you think they're going to remember it this evening and of course the answer is no it's you remember it far more than other people and yeah. so it's remembering that actually you this to you is much stronger than actually to them. You're noticing it far more than most other people are noticing it. And um and, and that can be quite a powerful thing to to can remember and actually most people are, are really compassionate not everybody but most people are really compassionate mm. and most people want to make you feel comfortable so they're going to see that as not uh, something that's negative about you mm. you know I, I think you know seeing somebody if you if you're in a meeting and you see somebody's kind of um you know redness in their cheeks or redness in their neck which happens an awful lot I would say it happens you know I've seen it happen every meeting I'm in and it's happened to me before most people actually then try to make you feel comfortable because they want to, you to do well most people yeah. are thinking about you positively it's it's you know I, I was like i was in a meeting last week and um that's just a normal sign of kind of your anxiety it's not your anxiety system your your on switch going on to get you ready so redness in your cheeks and your face is a sign that you kind of your body's getting you ready for action now obviously it happens when you're anxious but also just happens when your body wants to get ready to go so it happens to me in meetings and I used to be really mortified about that but actually now I just think well it's just my body getting me ready to prepare for this meeting so it doesn't really matter
0: so it happens to so many people. Yeah no exactly I think everybody the way you've just said everyone kind of feels the same I think is immensely reassuring um for myself as well which I often I do find that the people you least expect are always the ones as well that feel those things. So I guess if my listeners think, oh, Rhiannon gets shy, yes, I do. (laughs) Very shy. I think everybody, like you said, does. But we move on to our fact or fiction round now, Emma. Are you ready? I am ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. If you could answer fact or fiction to the following questions. Sugar makes you happier. Oh, goodness, that's an
1: interesting question. <laughs> so certainly there is something about sugar which releases energy and can, give, um, can make you feel good. Um, but obviously um, sugar can also can impact your energy levels. You can have a drop afterwards. So it can impact your emotions in a number of ways. It can make you feel good, but also it can make you sometimes feel not good as well. We eat too much. So it can make you have lots of different emotions.
0: Yes, well answered there. Um, addiction <laughs> is a lack of willpower. Oh,
1: absolutely not. No. Um, willpower is often, so I'd say um, fiction. So addiction is how our brains work. We have a reward system in our brain. And when this fires, um, it triggers chemicals in our brain, which makes us anticipate a reward. And then obviously, when we get that reward, whatever it is, it could be chocolate, it could be exercise, it could be anything, then it's it's creates a kind of habitual process in our brain now obviously some people are more prone to that than other people our brains all work slightly differently but that's not about willpower it's about how our brains work in creating habits and rewarding those habits rather and I think there's I think seeing it as willpower can be detrimental because we see it as something internal and um, about the person but actually we all have the same reward system and we can all be prone to the same
0: behaviours Yes, exactly. Your childhood largely dictates your mental health in adulthood. Oh, it's a good question.
1: Um, I'm not sure I can answer fact or fiction to this one, to be <laughs> honest, because obviously your childhood is very, very important in in shaping your belief systems, um, how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you view other people. And there's certainly evidence to say that adverse childhood events do predict Mental health in the future for people, but that's with a large group of people. So, with individuals, I don't think you can say my childhood is necessarily going to determine my mental health across my entire lifespan because actually we can see building mental health um, or improving our mental health as a skill. And actually, we can, you can think there's a really nice jam jar model where we look at vulnerabilities. And if we think of childhood factors as vulnerabilities. It fills our jam jar to a certain level, Mm. but actually stress is really important as well. So stress would fill our jam jar. And if the jam jar gets full, then it overflows and it creates mental health difficulties. However, where those skills come in is we can increase the jam jar and give ourselves more space by learning helpful coping strategies. So it's a
0: yes and also, (laughs) but we can do something about it. There we go, um, mental health problems are a life sentence. No,
1: absolutely not. Um, we, there is good treatment for mental health difficulties. We need to see them as something that is treatable and that is changeable. And we also not need to not define ourselves by them. So many people experience a mental health difficulty in, our, in their lives and many people get better from that. Some people will, ex- will experience it again, but so much of that is about what's going on in our lives. But also so many people will, will feel happy again in the future. And I I love the fact Matt Haig talks about at one point um, in his life that he felt like things were going to be terrible for the rest of his life in his early 20s. And he could never have predicted that all the, you know, how he feels now, he feels happy a lot of the time. And I think it's really important to hold on to hope when you experience a mental health difficulty that things can get better.
0: So really important. Kathleen, exacerbates stress.
1: Oh, um, interesting question. Well, it depends how you use caffeine. So caffeine sometimes for me (laughs) actually um, helps reduce my stress because if I'm feeling very tired in the morning, uh, caffeine will help me feel less tired and actually be able to get on with my job more. So in that instance, caffeine actually helps me reduce stress. However, caffeine can increase stress because it sets off the same kind of mechanisms. It certainly can create some of the same symptoms and create anxiety symptoms, particularly if you're using it too much.
0: Exactly. Personal flaws cause mental health problems.
1: No, absolutely not.
0: (laughs) Men's mental health is worse than women's.
1: Oh, um, no, um, not necessarily. Um, Actually, I think, I'm actually not sure about the exact figures, but I do believe that women experience slightly more mental health difficulties than men. However, do they really? Or is it just that women are reporting more because maybe it's expected more?
0: Exactly. And finally, if you don't get enough sleep, your mental health will worsen. Uh, to some extent, um, that could be true.
1: Um, sleep is a really powerful predictor of mental health difficulties. However, it depends on the quality of your sleep and how long the sleep difficulties go on for. But certainly lack of sleep, can, as we all know, can make us feel really pretty crappy. And long-term
0: mm-hmm. lack of sleep can impact negatively on your mental health and wellbeing exactly 100 percent. that was a great fact of fiction round thank you so much it was so informative as well so i think our listeners have taken so much away and there's so much more we could talk about but that does nearly wrap up the episode and we always finish with a food for thought so i will start today by i think reiterating what we've spoken about at the beginning of the podcast that kindness is quite an important pathway help one another but also listening and knowing you're not alone is quite quite a big one because so many people are struggling and we all know someone or we have ourselves been impacted especially with with Covid-19 the ongoing pandemic at the moment it's very unknown territory and humans don't like change so it's, it's, it's tricky and I really hope that everyone out there is doing okay right now and that from listening to this it's been helpful and you know that you know People like Emma are going to be so proud and happy for you that you come forward asking for help if if that's you know what you need to do, because there's no comparing, it's all relative. you know How you feel is extremely valid. And Emma, if you could leave us with your, I don't know, a take home message, a food for thought that you would like to leave our listeners, what would that be?
1: Sure, I think it's important to recognize we all have mental health. It's not just some of us that have mental health, we all have mental health and we will all experience fluctuations in that mental health across our lifespan Mm. so we all need to look after our mental health and taking time to understand yours and taking small daily steps proactively to look after your mental health will help you manage that and possibly those small daily steps are probably more important than the big changes or the big things but so i really don't undervalue those tiny things those daily things you can do to improve your mental health because they're crucial
0: yeah that was lovely emma thank you so much for giving up your time to come on the podcast today um, i know you've got a wonderful social media page as well so if you could let our listeners know where they can go to find out more about you that would be great
1: sure so i illustrate mental health concepts at the psychology mom on instagram or facebook and twitter as well so if you want to follow me on there that's where to find me
0: perfect emma thank you so much for coming on food for thought
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: If you are enjoying Food for Thought, you'll absolutely love our up and coming episodes. So if you don't already subscribe, then make sure that you click to be the first to hear it every Monday. It would be brilliant as well if you have the time to leave a review. And that would mean that we could reach higher highs in the charts. And that would result in hopefully helping more and more people. For more information about my Retrition clinic, books, healthy recipes, and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok.